Hello and welcome to Bite Size History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to be continuing our multi-part series on the basics of World War II. We already went through the lead-up to the war and the fall of Poland, the fall of France, and the Blitz, that is to say the bombing campaign that took place, uh, perpetrated by the planes of the Luftwaffe, so the German Air Force, uh, flying in the skies of Britain over green fields and populated cities. And uh, Britain was having a really hard time. Like I said in uh, one of the previous episodes, this truly was their darkest hour. So today we're going to continue the story for a little bit uh, through 1941, uh, maybe 1942, that kind of thing. So today, continuing the basics of World War II on Bite Size History. So like I said, the Axis invasion of the Soviet Union started on June 22nd, 1941. And from June to December, um, they steamrolled through places like Minsk, Smolensk, uh, Kiev, just completely driving towards Moscow. Now, this is where you see the, the some of the mistakes that Hitler starts to make. So for one, uh, a good number of units in the uh, German army did not pack winter uniforms because they figured, okay, well, we're invading in June. Hitler believed, oh, well, this whole thing is just going to collapse in a matter of weeks. In fact, he was quoted as saying, all we have to do is kick in the door and the whole rotten structure will come crashing down. Like he really believed that the communist regime was just rotten to the very core and could not support itself. And that if he invaded, either the people themselves would overthrow Stalin or he just would not have a hard time crushing the, the Red Army. So they went in and so now you have a Soviet officer corps that's purged. The officers that remain are either incompetent uh, chosen only for their loyalty to the state or their complete bootlickers who do not want to actually say what they think. Um, there will, in the future, you'll start to see exceptions like Georgi Zhukov uh, or Georgi Zhukov, depending on how you want to say it. He was one of the high Soviet commanders and he was actually one of the only people that Stalin tolerated him telling him straight. Uh, Zhukov was just such a skilled commander and so beloved by the men. And critically, he didn't have any political ambitions. Like, he just wanted to be a kick-butt soldier. Um, and that's why, you know, Stalin wasn't threatened by him. And Stalin actually allowed him to express his mind freely, which was a very, very, very rare privilege in the Soviet Union. By December 6, 1941, by this point, you know, the uh, Axis troops can actually see the spires of the Kremlin. They're just so close to Moscow, but they didn't pack winter uniforms. Um, the roads had been turned to mud and then snow, so that was slowed down. Uh, in fact, there was an old joke in the German army that the two best generals that the Russians had were General Mud and General Winter. So, you know, they had a sense of humor about some things. Um, the reason why this is important is because this, on December 6, 1941, there's a Soviet counteroffensive. Troops uh, had been brought in from the east. Factories had been packed up. I remember uh, reading somewhere that uh, Stalin was right, right on the verge of uh, fleeing Moscow. Like he was literally on the train platform, like pacing and, you know, chain smoking. 
And in the end, he made the decision to actually stay in the city. So that's kind of one of those speculative historical questions of what would have happened if Stalin would have fled the capital. Like, what would that have done to his government and stuff like that? Now, now remember, we're December 6, 1941. The next day, December 7, 1941. Hmm. Why does that ring a bell, especially for Americans? Well, that is the day that Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. So the United States, the very next day on December 8th, declared war on Japan, entering the Second World War. So once again, kind of getting pulled into an overseas conflict. But this was different than World War I. Um, this wasn't like, okay, there's a bunch of kind of abstract or maybe other reasons that don't hit quite so close to home. Like some of the main reasons the United States got involved in World War I were among other things, the sinking of the Lusitania and the Zimmerman telegram. Um, I'm sure you can listen to my old episodes on World War I if you want more details about this. But uh, relations between Japan and the United States had been degrading for years. And in response, the United States had been starting to support China, which very much angered the Japanese. And the Japanese were further angered and pushed to the brink when Roosevelt cut off uh, shipments of crude oil. Japan was not really a land power. Um, they had like skilled marines and very highly motivated infantry soldiers, but the strength of their armed forces were their air force, but especially their navy. Like when you're an island nation, it just makes sense. The Japanese navy required vast amounts of crude oil to actually function. So, you know, there have been some historians that have speculated that if the United States had, had continued to just kind of give them oil, like give them what they want, then maybe Pearl Harbor would not have happened. And then there's other people that say that no, Japanese expansion, the just sheer militarism of their culture and the expansionism, uh, the mentality of expansionism within the officer corps was just too strong. It could not be resisted. They would have eventually expanded and the United States would no longer be in a position to do nothing. But anyway, while this is happening uh, in December, uh, Japanese troops land in the Philippines, which was an American protectorate. They land in French Indochina, which is Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and British Singapore. Um, and they also occupied, um, they moved into Burma in May. So by April 1942, they had, so like this is four months after Pearl Harbor, they had taken the Philippines, Indochina, Singapore, which now is like six or seven different modern nations, which is just insane. Let me tell you something about the expansion of the Japanese in the spring of 1942. It seemed like they were unstoppable. Like even Singapore, where the guns, Singapore was considered the Gibraltar of the East. It was the center of British power in the Far East. The fall of Singapore is actually one of the worst military disasters in the history of the British Army. And it's because they expected a landborne invasion and the Japanese very daringly went through the land route, which was through jungles and mountains, and they thought it couldn't be done. But in any case, for some reason, on December 11th to 13th, 1941, Nazi Germany and their Axis partners declare war on the United States. Um, I think it's because Nazi Germany wanted now the excuse to start targeting U.S. ships that were supplying the British. That's one. They wanted to try to cut off any kind of help to the British. I think they saw that conflict with the Axis powers was inevitable. Um, Japan was nominally an Axis power, and I think, you know, they figured, uh, 
They just wanted to maybe preemptively hit the United States before the United States could get on what's called a war footing. A war footing is uh, people knew that the United States was kind of a, quote, sleeping giant. You always hear that term, a sleeping giant, sleeping giant. And it's because they had this vast, vast industrial potential, but they hadn't really committed to entering the war until something like Pearl Harbor happened. Um, in June of 1942, the U.S. Navy managed to halt the Japanese pushing into the Central Pacific at a place called Midway. And there was a really good movie that just came out on, uh, I think it was Amazon Prime, just called Midway. Lots of people are in it. Uh, uh, Woody Harrelson's in it and uh, Jason, um, oh, what's his name? Oh, the guy from Insidious, Jason Wilson, I think, uh, is in it. Very, very good movie. Midway was important because what it did was after six months, the U.S. armed forces were demoralized and, and not to mention their Western allies, France and Britain had lost a bunch of stuff in the Pacific. So that was kind of the, the turning point. Midway crucially demonstrated the critical importance of carriers, carrier warfare. So what's called naval aviation, where you have fleets of ships fighting each other in the air and you have close air support bombers and naval bombers on the one side, torpedo bombers, stuff like that, trying to hit the enemy ships. And then you have a fighter screen protecting the other fleet, and there's just a lot of fighting in the sky. This was very different uh, from naval engagements in the past, where the secret was to have giant battleships with huge guns that had an immense range. Now, those um, ships could be sunk relatively easily. Like, uh, one of the big, big ships in the east was called the HMS Prince of Wales, and it was sunk early in the war by Japanese planes. And some historians have pointed to that as a turning point, where they said, you know, that demonstrated that now battleships were no longer the king of the seas, it was the carriers. And this is kind of a major turning point in, in the history of the U.S. Navy, but in the history of naval warfare in general, because you start to see the shift of naval supremacy from European powers to other powers, like uh, the biggest and most powerful navies in World War II. Yeah, the Royal Navy was still a really big deal, but you see the ascendancy of the US Navy and the Japanese Navy, and by the end of the war, the US Navy is just huge, 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 huge. Our story begins in the spring of 1941, where Britain stood alone against the Axis powers. By this point, they were fighting the Germans. Um, they were fighting the Germans in the, uh, on the seas, in the skies, and pretty much fighting for their life to try to hold off a German invasion of the British Isles, which had been planned. Uh, Hitler had a plan called Operation Sea Lion, if you ever want to look it up. Operation Sea Lion was the planned invasion of the British Isles, but first they had to get air supremacy over the Channel and above southern Britain, so the lands of England. And that's what led to the Battle of Britain and then followed by the Blitz, which was uh, the difference between the Battle of Britain. The Battle of Britain was the military engagement in the skies, uh, and then Hermann Goering, uh, the leader of the Luftwaffe, eventually changed his strategy to start bombing civilian targets, and that's what we call the Blitz. So that's the difference between the Blitz and the Battle of Britain. 
So by the spring of 1941, uh, like I said, they're alone. February 1941, <clears throat> the Germans send the Afrika Corps to North Africa to reinforce the Italians who were having a hard time fighting the British who were operating out of Egypt. March 1st, 1941, Bulgaria joins the Axis powers. April 6, 1941 to June 1941, Germany, Italy, and Hungary invade Yugoslavia, so in the Balkans, and together with Bulgaria, they cut the country apart and take pieces of it. Yugoslavia surrenders on the 17th of April, and Germany and Bulgaria then invade Greece in support of the Italians, because the Italians had made a move for Greece. Now, Benito Mussolini really... Part of his fascist ideology that he sold to the Italian people was that he wanted to create a uh, Novus Imperium Romanum, like a new Roman Empire. And part of that was taking the ancient and very historically, you know, important and prestigious lands of Greece. Why am I talking about the Balkans and Greece? It's because though that campaign delayed the invasion of Russia by a crucial six weeks. And uh, that's the big thing that I wanted to talk about uh, at this moment in the episode is June 22nd, 1941, Nazi Germany and their their Axis allies, um, maybe I should say their Axis partners, uh, because Axis allies either sounds like the board game or it just sounds confusing. They invaded the Soviet Union. Now, this was the largest land invasion in history. Um, it's kind of interesting. If you Google like the largest invasion of, in history, Sometimes you'll get the result that it's actually D-Day, um, but D-Day was the largest amphibious invasion in history. It's not the largest invasion just in general. Uh, Operation Barbarossa, which was the German code name for the invasion of, I feel like I'm saying invasion a lot, uh, for the invasion of the Soviet Union, was many, many, many times the size of D-Day. Um, it involved well over 3 million Axis troops. Like, the previous huge kind of thrust into Russia had been uh, put into place by Napoleon uh, over a century earlier. And he went in with La Grande Armée. He went in with five, six, maybe six and a half, uh, 650,000 troops. So the invasion, uh, Hitler's invasion was, was much, much bigger. So... The Soviets had been undergoing a process of purging their military. Stalin, uh, you know, the leader of the Soviet Union, just didn't trust anybody. And in the years leading up to World War II, uh, he purged. That is to say, you make up kind of fake crimes of people you don't trust, and then you have them arrested, exiled, or killed. He had purged the officer corps of the Soviet Union because he wanted to remove all opposition. Well. You know, in the process of doing that, you end up destroying all of your best officers. So that's kind of, I'm trying to build up the storm here of why the Soviet Union in the first opening months of Operation Barbarossa just fell so badly. Like the amount of people that they lost in those opening stages, it's just mind blowing. Nineteen forty-two, which is where we are now, was just a huge year for the Axis powers. Um, from June to se September, um, so like the early stages of the Axis invasion of the Soviet Union, all the way to September, uh, they just smashed through Russia. And there were German generals that were getting discouraged. They're like, "Yeah, 
we're making these huge advances, but Russia just always seems to have more land and more people and more land and more people. In fact, there are stories from the war that on the steppes of southern Russia, the German soldiers had to actually navigate using the stars because you would have these vast expanses of just grass. Like it was easy to get lost. Like there, you know, there weren't even landmarks like copses of trees or anything. Um, but by the time they get to uh, August and September, they start fighting their way into Stalingrad, which is now called Volgograd. And that was just one of the biggest battles of World War II, one of the biggest battles in world history, one of the most important battles of world history, because that's where the German Empire, like the German Reich, finally, finally was stopped and turned back. But that battle did take a good six months, so we're not going to see that end until February of 1943. Also happening, October 23rd to 24th, uh, British troops were fighting, fighting, fighting for their lives in the North African desert, across Libya and, and Egypt. And uh, the Africa Corps, led by a very daring general called Erwin Rommel, who was called the Desert Fox, had actually made it into Egypt by this point, but they were turned back uh, at a battle called El Alamein, El Alamein in Egypt. And they pushed the Axis forces in a crazy retreat back into Libya. Um, so that's kind of like, we see two major reverses in the second half of 1942 for the Germans. One is at Stalingrad, but again, El Alamein only took two days. Stalingrad would take six months. Like Stalingrad is just, oh my God, it was such a battle of attrition. Kind of reminds me of Verdun from World War I. It was so bad, the Germans called it the Rattenkrieg, the War of the Rats. Uh, and in fact, I think there's, there's a pretty decent book written about that battle called the war of the rats if you want to try to look that up in november and february soviet troops kept counter-attacking and bleeding the axis troops dry uh, at stalingrad but by february of 1942 they had broken through the hungarian and romanian divisions that were northwest and southwest of stalingrad and encircled the german sixth army in the city of Stalingrad. So what they had done, the Axis forces, they had committed the German troops, the, the most highly trained and well-armed and armored and everything uh, to the actual city, guarding their flanks where their uh, Axis uh, partners, the Hungarian troops and the Romanian troops. So anyway, they collapsed. Germans are encircled in Stalingrad. That's it. By February, if I recall, it was the German Sixth Army, something like 91, 93,000 prisoners huge 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 also just a few months later may 13th 1943 so now we're getting into the middle of 1943 axis forces in tunisia who had been pummeled they had been pushed back by um british operating out of egypt and then on the other side there had been a um invasion an amphibious invasion of morocco which i if i recall was called operation torch which was the americans entering the war getting their first taste of blood uh supported by british troops and free french forces and on may 13th uh, 1943 these axis forces surrendered in tunisia and that was the end of the italian troops in north africa the libyan troops it was the end of the deutsches afrika corps so these were the german soldiers that had been sent to africa with the acronym d-a-k deutsches afrika corps
just a little bit, uh, about two months, May to June to July, after the fall of uh, Axis forces in North Africa, the Germans on July 5th, 1943, they proceed with this huge, huge tank offensive near Kursk in the Soviet Union. And it was the largest tank battle of all time. It took the Soviets a week just to stop the Germans advancing and then continued with their post-Stalingrad offensive. In Ju on July 10th, 1943, American and British troops started landing in Sicily, which in the opinion of Winston Churchill, Sicily and Italy in general was, quote, the soft underbelly of Europe. He knew that because of uh, Axis forces in northern France and what was called the Atlantic Wall, the Atlantic Wall, which was uh, the German line of fortifications in France and stuff like that, it would have been easier to just attack through Italy. So that's what they did using North Africa and Malta as launching points. On July 25th, 1943, uh, the fascist Grand, Grand Council got rid of Benito Mussolini and uh, they create this new kind of fascist government in the north. By this point, like mid-1943, the uh, fascist government in Italy is falling apart to the, to the point where by September 8th, 1943, the fascist government that had replaced uh, Mussolini, uh, they, like they had replaced him with uh, this general called Marshal Pietro Badoglio, but anyway, whatever. They replaced him too, and they and they surrendered unconditionally to the Allies. So the Germans, what they do is they take control of Rome and northern Italy, and they put in a new kind of puppet regime back under Mussolini, <laughs> who had been imprisoned, and he was freed by he was freed from his prison by German commandos on September 12th. And that is just a crazy story. If you ever want to look into it, is these German commandos basically para-dropped onto the roof of this prison complex, and it was like a daring raid by, you know, something you could definitely make a movie about. Uh, the very next day, September 9th, Allied troops land on the beaches of Salerno near Naples, so now they're on mainland Italy. November 6, 1943, if it, it like, I've got a timeline here, because uh, in previous episodes, I, I re-listened to them and I wanted to be a little more organized to kind of... What I'm trying to do right now is keep you in 1943. But uh, by November 6, 1943, Soviet troops had liberated Kiev. So now they're in Ukraine. Oh, great. Oh, geez. How timely is that, eh? Russians in Ukraine. Ugh. Anyway, uh, so that's pretty much it. That's all I'm going to talk about for 1943. So what you need to know is that, like... The spring of 1942 was a huge explosion of Axis power. And the Axis uh, nations of uh, Nazi Germany, you had fascist Italy, you had militaristic fascist Japan, and then you had their minor allies, like people that were helping them, officially like contributing troops. You had places like Croatia, Hungary, Romania, Finland, and then unofficially places like Spain that were giving intelligence, money, weapons, uh, and volunteers. Like there were Spanish troops fighting in Russia. Um, I believe it was called the Spanish Blue Division. I don't know why. Um, I was going to make a joke linking it to Spanish artist Pablo Picasso in his blue period. But I'm like, eh, that's too much of a stretch. <laughs> so, anyway, <laughs> uh, major Axis reverses at Kursk. Okay, and then uh, a little bit, you had El Alamein, Stalingrad, like I'm trying to throw kind of some of these names out here. The Battle of Midway, the Battle of the Coral Sea uh, against the Japanese uh, and the Americans. The Battle of the Coral Sea, 
which was fought in 1942, was a really big deal because it was the first battle where the ships that were fighting actually could not see each other. So further reinforcing the ascendancy of naval aviation. So that's kind of where I wanted to leave you now is uh, let's stop at the spring of 19... Let's stop at the end of 1943 for today, and then future episodes I'm going to tackle 1944 and maybe 1945, maybe in two separate episodes, maybe in one episode. All right, well, that's all I got for uh, today. I wanted to leave 1944 and 1945 for a future episode. Uh, we talked a lot, actually, about this was, you know, 1942-1943 was really, really the critical, crucial turning point in the war, where you start to see the Axis no longer being the ones attacking and keeping the Allies on the back foot. This is where you start to see U.S. forces enter the war, and you start to see British and Soviet forces counterattack after giving and, um, like, losing for so long. You start to see uh, renewed morale among the Allied forces and faith that, the, you know, this war maybe could be won. You know, one of the reasons why it, the Germans got defeated so handily at Stalingrad is just because their, their army was not designed to fight in this war of attrition, street fighting, infantry-centric combat. You know, that very heavily favors the, defense, the defensive, the defenders, very, very much heavily favored the Soviet Union. Soviet Union lost hundreds of thousands of men in that battle, by the way. Like, it's not like, uh, you know, and at one point the Germans actually had 90% of the city. I believe it was uh, November. There was just a thin sliver um, on the west bank of the Volga River where they were holding on. Like, really, really, really close. Like, Stalingrad was not a, you know, a sure, oh man, was it close. Anyway. Um, so yeah, and I wanted to freshen up the intro music and the outro music, so you'll notice that's different today. Uh, I'm looking forward to finishing the war and maybe tackling one or two uh, more special episodes before getting back to the regular kind of programming that I have planned. Uh, I, when I say special episodes, I wanted to do another thing like the fall of France, where I select a question about World War II and try to answer that question, rather than... Um, just giving you an overview, like a flyover view of the war. You know, if you have a question, please send it in. Uh, in any case, this has been Bite Size History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bite sized history podcast at gmail.com. Please uh, follow me on Spotify, leave a review on Apple iTunes, uh, whatever you can do. Tell your friends, tell your friends. And um, <clears throat> once again, thank you so, so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>